out from the Roman prison. And what he's dealing with in this letter, among other things, is that the church in Ephesus does not know how blessed they are, the bounty that they have in Christ. And Paul, throughout this letter, redirects them back to that. In the particular section today, we will see that this is exactly what he's dealing with. Let us now hear the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Page 1579 of your Pew Bible. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, and we should walk in them. Amazing grace! These two words are said, we often think of the old spiritual song. You may even hear the favorite version of it being played in our heads as we hear the two words. Mine happens to be Glenn Campbell playing it on the bagpipes. Thank you for being gracious and not mocking the bagpipes. <laughs> or perhaps when you hear the word grace or amazing grace, you may think of something that happens before a meal or something before bed or even His Grace, the Duke of Wellington. I think J.C. Ryle said that. <clears throat> or maybe you've heard God's amazing grace spoken of in too casual of a manner, such as, Hey John, were you able to buy the last bag of chips for the family to get together? By the grace of God, I got them. Billy, they'll be on the dinner table. <clears throat> or, maybe in a deep, serious way that we cannot even possibly understand, a cancer survivor looks you in the eyes and says, I'm still here by the grace of God. Yeah. But have we ever thought about those two words more deeply? Have we ever really pondered about how amazing the grace of God is? Or what is so amazing about grace? As we look into our passage today, we see Paul unfolding the answers to these, this question to the church of Ephesus. He unfolds why grace is amazing in the life of man because without it, we are in a state that is nothing but true despair and hopelessness. We will see that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us three answers on why God's grace is amazing. Because it's for sinners, 
It is endless for those who are in Christ, and it is a gift. So grace is amazing because it's for sinners. As Paul described the work that grace had done for the Ephesians in verse 1, we see that He, that is God, made us alive. Notice that the Bible does not say here that you made yourself alive, but rather you were made alive. There must be something outside of us that changes us. It cannot be done from inside of us. Now why couldn't you do this for yourself, you may ask? The answer is simple. A dead man can do nothing for himself. It has been said by Bible commentators and scholars that Paul uses the term dead here to describe our spiritual state to express that we are in a casket, dead, not lying sick in a hospital bed, ready to check out as soon as we can get out of the bed. We are graveyard dead in our sins. In verse 1, Paul goes on to say that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Though we are physically alive, there are only two works we can accomplish in this state. And those are trespasses and sins. A continual state that we cycle through as we lay in our spiritual coffins. We cannot morally or spiritually restore ourselves because there is no moral or spiritual life or spark within us. We see this emphasized in verse 2 as he goes on and he says that we walk through the course of this world day in and day out a path of death. This pattern is modeled after those who we see in our state of death as royalty. As dead men, we follow this prince of the air under his powers. Who is this Prince of, the power, Prince of the air whose powers we are under. As we live in this age waiting when Christ return, it is Satan himself that is Prince of the air, having his way with this world. He is the head of the household of the dead, you might say. In John 8, 44, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says this very thing. He says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Does Jesus not lay out the course of this world when he reveals to us some of the devil's attributes? It is no wonder that the air of this age is dark, choking, and blinding, a moral atmosphere that leads down a path laced with temptation and falling. We in disobedience trespass by acting out these ungodly desires, sins, which are born in our very own hearts when Satan is our father. The world knows this instinctively, and that's the very spirit of it. One only needs to see the billboards along 85 South coming into the city or hear of the daily killings on the news to see this visible in your face atmosphere of death. The very air is thick with the dominion of Satan. In verse 3, there is no expansion on, there's expansion on these trespasses and sins. In verse 1, by saying we conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh of the mind. As our daily goal as sinners to find joy in sinning against God. We find our happy place in a world that purposely excludes His love and will for our lives. We go on playing in our caskets of spiritual death, like a child in a sandbox. We as sinners, that is, children of wrath, have no familiar relationship to peace. 
but to our father Satan. We have no peace with God because we do not find our joy in him. We are objects of God's wrath. As sinners, we're objects of death. But in this reminder, Paul gives us, we're fortunately are told that this life as Christians is in the past. Listen to the tenses he uses in verse 1. We were made alive. We were dead. Because grace is amazing, it already takes effect on the sinner and brings us out of the casket of trespass and sin into where we are no longer to be the objects of death, but the objects of life. So we've laid out that briefly here that grace is amazing because it's for sinners. But the second answer that we have to deal with for a little bit is grace is amazing because it is endless for those who are in Christ. Christian, know this about our trying God. He is rich in mercy, and it's an endless source of life. God's silo of compassion is always full and able to resurrect anyone from the spiritual graveyard. His mercy is rich. We're told here why. Because his love for us is great. These two attributes go hand in hand. God will never say that he loves you and then deny you mercy. As a matter of fact, this rich love of God as we see in John 4.19, is the very reason why we love Him. He loved us first. This deep love that made us alive together with Christ, the basis of our spiritual life, is that it is codependent with Christ. Without Christ, we are left dead with our trespasses and sins. But in Christ, we are brought to life. How? Because it's He that bore our sins for us, so that we would not die. In John 1, 29, it is said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Hebrews 9, 26b, we are told Christ put away sin by sacrifice of himself. And in John, 1 John 2, 2, we are told he is the proportion of our sin, the propitiation of our sins. Not for our sins only, but for the whole world. Paul goes on and writes in Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, that is, His patient self-control, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. So what is propitiation? Propitiation is the fact that God is angry. Remember, we're children of wrath. That God is angry, and this is somehow going to be taken out upon the sinner. We are obvious to death. Yet, because Christ paid for that, He has reversed and removed the wrath of God upon those who have been raised to life in Him. Propitiation means that Jesus has removed the wrath of God upon those who are raised to life in Him. His bearing our sins makes us no longer objects of wrath, but life. The Bible does not relent on Jesus being our Savior and our only Savior. Here, in this very section, Paul doubles down on this as he writes in verses 5 and 8, it is by grace we have been saved through faith in Christ. What Paul is telling us here is that Christ himself is the very grace of God. 
But Paul is telling us here that it is Christ who is the very grace of God. Now, how do we know that Jesus is the grace of God? We know that Jesus is the grace of God because scriptures tell us that it is his name alone that saves man. Acts 4.12 We know that Christ is the grace of God because he is the only gift of salvation because of God's love for the world. John 3.16 We know that Christ is the grace of God because it is in him that we are resurrected from the dead. John 5.21 We know that Christ is the grace of God because he obeyed the will of the Father for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We know that Jesus is the very grace of God because it's the very throne that he sits on as king. Hebrews 4.16 As Christ alone, the mercy and love of God is so great. As verse 5 points out, even though we are undeserving of God's mercy, as we are dead in our trespasses, it's his grace that made us alive in Christ. And we are even raised up to the heavenly places in Him. In Christ, we are raised to the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. This destination we are being given here is where Christians dwell with their Savior. We were once dead, buried in the ground, but we are now raised above the prince of the air, above the ungodly, the moral atmosphere of this age, and sit in the third heaven with Jesus. The heavenly place where we dwell in the presence of Almighty God. Think of an elevator based on our spiritual reality here. As a child of wrath, we're on the bottom basement floor in an open dugout grave, breathing in the poisonous, satanic, toxic, immoral air from the ground floor all the way up into the office suites. But in Christ, we're raised up all the way above the heavenly places to the very top floor of Him. And it's in Him that we are above all that. We are made alive, breathing the atmosphere of God's amazing grace to life. In verse 7, it's continued that we are given a result. It promised that God's grace in the ages to come are that he might show exceeding riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He might show the exceeding riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. As we are made alive in Christ, no longer objects of death, and are now objects of life, we are the objects of his kindness forever in the ages to come. The kindness of God is unmerited for the sinner. The Bible is clear that this kindness is in Christ Jesus alone. Jesus is not only the grace of God, he is the kindness of God. Titus 3.4 tells us, But when the kindness of and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, toward man, appeared. The kindness of God, which is ultimately displayed with Jesus being born and going to the cross. Just like we saw God rich in mercy in verse 2, we see here that his kindness is exceedingly rich. The Bible stresses that these characteristics of God are super or more than abundant than we could ever understand. Like Israel in the wilderness with the manna falling from the sky, it was always more than sufficient. It was super, it was more. My grandfather used to love to go to those 
restaurants with a bottomless cup of coffee for five or ten cents. Y'all know what I'm talking about. It gave him joy, knowing that uh, there's always a server always ready to top off his cup with some hot coffee. I know you understand. You all understand this because I see y'all drink five or six cups of peace here. So think of having your favorite mug sitting right there by your favorite chair, and when you need it, it will always be there. A hot, fresh sip ready to refresh you. In the same way, God's mercy is there, overbrimming. To drink from as you need to be refreshed by His grace and fight the trespasses and sins of this world. He is super merciful, super love, and super kindness. To those whom He raised up in Christ, God promised us that His cup of mercy will never run empty. So we see that God's amazing grace is for sinners. It is endless for those who are in Christ Jesus. We now see that God's grace is a gift. Now a gift is something we're given, right? It's not something we earn. No one in here has ever gone to their boss and when they get their check and say, thank you for this gift. You earned it, right? Okay. So, the result of this gift for us, though, is salvation, eternal life. Not eternal life like the life we know now, but a life where the desire to stop sin and kick against the will of God will no longer be stirring in our hearts. The ailments of the curse and the sweat from working in the sun Diabetes, cancer, muscles injured because of age will no longer torment us. Perfection and glorification for those of us who were once dead in their sin and trespasses. Notice in verse 8 is that we have been given the very important, the very instrument that saves us. Faith. So what is faith? It is a seed planted in our hearts by God so that we believe in and trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. Faith is a seed planted in our hearts so that we may believe and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Yet it's a gift. We did not earn this. We did not happen to be walking over here to the store on Simpson and see it on the ground and pick it up and say, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. God has given it to us. As a gift, we have absolutely no business boasting about the grace that is given to us. That is, none of our works, even the best of them, can bring us this gift of faith. Think of this. Think of you go on your job and you alone work on fixing the stairs because your boss asked you to. And when your boss comes out, and he sees your buddy standing there with you. He says, thank y'all for fixing my stairs. But it was you that fixed the stairs. And your friend says, oh, you're welcome. You're like, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You didn't have any part in this. I'll fix those stairs. Your friend is boasting about something that he did not do. And that's exactly what's going on here. When it comes to our salvation, there's nothing that we did. We did not participate in any way. It was God alone. It was His grace. It was His mercy. It was His kindness. It was the work of Christ. It was the obedience of Christ that saves us. 
And this faith that we're given so that we trust and believe in that, it as well is given to us. God reminds us sternly in Isaiah 64, 6 of what our works really are as we are dead and trespassing of sin. But we are like an unclean thing. And all our unrighteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Our works are useless in our salvation, being made alive from death of trespass and sin. See, when you work and you don't have Christ, if you go to God and you say, look at what I did. Look, I, I helped the little lady across the road. I gave... I gave this other person $10. I gave this other person $20. I worked two hours later at my job. I called my mother on her birthday. I went to church today. He's going to say, yeah, but there's a problem with all that. I only see the sin that you've done. Because even at your best attempts, those things were tainted by sin. And even the smallest amount of sin, I cannot pay my eyes off. Our works outside of Christ mean nothing. We're given faith, the saving faith, because the hand of God has condescended from the throne of grace and planted it in our hearts. Faith says we have no works to boast about from ourselves, but with faith we can boast about the work Christ has done for us. Remember verse 1, we were told that we were made alive. You did not make yourself alive. We were incapable of doing this work ourselves. We are given the answer to how God made us alive here in verse 10. We are his workmanship. It is God who is chiseling at us, building us up, molding our hearts, working with us to sanctify us. And that is making us more in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That we may walk among the living in his grace. This craftsmanship, this making the old man new, is a spiritual wanting to produce good works there in Christ Jesus. There it is again, Christ Jesus. We cannot do it apart from him. Ezekiel 16, 14 says that we are beautiful and perfect through God's splendor, but it's his splendor, not our own. In James 2, 18, it is written that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. And in Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another, since you've put off the old man with his deeds. We're made alive to no longer breathe in and out the air of worldliness, but to be an atmosphere of grace to others. As we have come out of sin, as we have come out of the grave, we have now, walking along, we're to be an example of these things to others, and they see that by our good works in Christ. And by the way, in Christ, now God can see your good works. Without Christ, he can't look at them. In Christ, he can look at them. Look how amazing grace is. So we now walk among the living by God's amazing grace. We are to do the works of the living. Put off the lust of the flesh and be obedient to the will of God. I do hope that you see 
God's grace is amazing. It is the favor we find in the eyes of God though we are still in a state of guilt of our sin but have been redeemed through Jesus Christ. It is amazing because it is a free and endless gift of mercy for the weary sinner. It is the heavenly place we go to confess our worthless and worldly works so we may be made alive in Christ for our works become works of life. God's grace is amazing because with it we can exercise the seed of faith God has planted in us. Know that even our best attempts at work will never come close to the grace and work shown in Christ on the cross. It is in Him alone that we are made alive. And it's grace that lets us know that the absence of Him leads to our death. Brothers and sisters, live now in God's grace. Be in the heavenly places with Christ and be his workmanship to life. And when you sin, go to your knees and get in line to receive from God's treasure house of mercy. You will not have to pay for it and you will not wait long. There's plenty to go around. And like my grandfather giving a nickel or a dime for that cup of coffee, God's amazing grace is a gift, a free gift. And in doing so, you will see just how amazing the grace of God really is.